What I want to talk to you tonight is, I believe, an underserved topic. And it's because most churches are like, we're going to talk about Satan. You know, everyone's like, I'm not coming back. Yeah, it's not, not very good. Uh, but it's a really important topic that all of us as God's children know that we have an adversary that has a real plan. And so I want to start tonight by telling you a little story and show you a picture of my brother-in-law. His name's Keith. I don't know if we have a photo that we might throw in there. You can't see him very well, but he's back there looking kind of discouraged. And all these guys, you can tell it's like not the most cheerful photo. And there's a reason for that. My brother-in-law, when he graduated, he wanted to spend a year trying to figure out what he wanted to do. And he's like, I want to impact the world. So he decided to go into the Peace Corps and decided to go serve people in the country of Guatemala. So he's there. And the need that they have in Guatemala is they need to teach indigenous people how to cultivate their crops and how to develop great yields. And so he spent time there. So he would go there and teach them, give them best practices, help them cultivate. And so he spent a week there setting it all up and then go leave for another week and go to another village. And then he'd come back and then all of a sudden there's like goats and chickens in their garden that have destroyed all the crops. He's like, all right, all right, guys, all right, let's do this from the top. All right, so I'm going to plant this. And so he would spend another week working with them and then get it all set, and like, all right, we just got to tend to this, and then he'd leave for a week, come back, and the same thing happened. And so these villages, he got very frustrated because he wanted to help produce fruit, but the local people, the villages, they could not get under the mindset that they need to protect the fruit that is going to be developed. And so fruitfulness is really important because when you're fruitful, you're self-sustaining. And that is really the aim at what his mission was, is how do I help these villages become self-sustaining? But part of that is that you become fruitful and be sustainably fruitful. And so on the topic of fruit, I'm going to switch gears and offend a few people, but have you ever noticed that Christians can be some of the least fruitful people you know? Some say that Christians exude the least amounts of fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, you know those? And they say that Christians are supposed to love, but sometimes some of the most unloving people we know happen to be believers. Christians are supposed to have joy, but yet Christians oftentimes are some of the most depressed people we know. Christians are supposed to have peace, and I don't know about you, but some of the most stressed out people I know are believers. Christians are supposed to have patience and a real anxiety. Christians are supposed to be kind, have kindness, but also we realize that Christians can be unkind at times too, and you get the idea. But in other words, Christians can dis display the least amount of proof that they are a Christian. But yet we're supposed to be known by our fruit. Every good tree produces good fruit. And so you might be wondering, why does this happen? If we have God and the Holy Spirit, we've been saved, how can you have unfruitful Christians? Maybe you might be thinking of that as well. You're like, I've been in the church, I love Jesus, and that fruit that I'm promised, that I'm assured of, is just not being produced in my life. What is wrong with me? What am I doing? And so the problem is that the fruit of the Spirit doesn't require effort. 
It says the fruit of the Spirit, and you have the Spirit, is love, joy, peace. It's a natural result you have. Notice how an apple tree is like not stressed over those apples it's creating. <laughs> you plant apple seed. You just don't mess it up, and you get apples. Fruit is a natural result of the identity of a tree, of, of a fruit tree. And so the same is for you, is that when you have the Spirit, the natural result is the fruit of the Spirit. You don't have to try. But why do so many of us feel like we try and try and try, and there's not a whole lot of fruit to show? How do we explain that? And I wonder, and I propose to you, that there might be a thief that is stealing the fruit as soon as it's produced in your life. Because if a thief can steal the fruit the moment that it is produced, you might think that's a barren tree. Could it be that there is a thief among us as we're producing fruit that naturally comes forth that there's an enemy we're not recognizing that is stealing that fruit? And this is what I felt the Lord was saying to me about tonight for the church is that he is causing fruit. His spirit causes fruit. You have to stand on that promise. I have the spirit. Fruit comes forth. But the Lord wants to reveal to us, I believe tonight, that we're not doing a good job in protecting the garden so the fruit remains. And just like in Guatemala, the fruitfulness of a person is actually based on their willingness to protect the garden that will naturally produce fruit. In other words, we don't have a fruitfulness problem. We actually have a thief in the garden problem. And so the church can do really good jobs at like bringing people to Sundays, plugging them into small groups, getting them to join this or that or attend this or make a pledge. But could it be that the church is actually not doing a good job in equipping believers to protect what God produces in them? I have a shocking stat to share with you, is that if we really have a thief, what percentage of believers believe that the thief is real? If you can believe it, Barna Research Group, which is the most renowned research group studying all the trends in all the faith. This study is almost 10 years old. 10 years ago, think of how much has changed now. 10 years ago, they surveyed Christians and found that 59% of Christians believe that Satan is just merely a symbol of evil and not a real force. Only 26% of believers think that Satan's real and he's legitimate and he's a valid force. And then 8% were just too scared to answer, apparently. <laughs> Could this be why it seems that so many Christians are unfruitful? That they have a thief in the garden that they refuse to believe in. But it's interesting when Jesus talks about what king goes to battle and does not size up his adversary. Wow. We're sending believers into the harvest field, not even telling them that there's an adversary you see, the, dev, the, the Bible tells us that the devil is roaming around, prowling around, looking for someone to devour. We might want to know what he's looking for. The Bible says that we need to resist the devil, but we might want to know how to identify him. The Bible says we shouldn't give a foothold. We might want to know what territory he occupies in our lives. The Bible says that we will crush the devil with our feet. We might want to know where to stomp. And so given that it's Independence Day, I figure what a great occasion then for some of us to declare independence from the devil. That's what I'm thinking. 
So this is more of a teaching. I love to preach, but I need to inform you, and I need to help you understand and identify the force that is real among ourselves. And so I want to give you a little education on our favorite little pest. <laughs> and I, I I'm, will be honest with you. This is not a fun message to preach. But I care about the lasting fruit of people. Yeah. If God is producing fruit that doesn't last, there's not a problem with you. There's probably the presence of the enemy. So the first thing is, who is Satan? He's not just a symbol of evil. Most theologians believe that Satan or Lucifer was a third archangel and that he actually was in charge of worship around God's throne. The prophet Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 28, says that he was perfect in beauty, possessing all wisdom and had the seal of perfection about him. And so Lucifer was this glorious creature in the heavenly realms. And yet Satan rebelled and was thrown down from heaven and led a rebellion that saw one-third of the angels follow him. So that's our little backstory here. But we get a little more information from Isaiah, chapter 14, verses 11 through 14. It says, this is talking about Lucifer or Satan. It says, your pomp and the music of your heart have been brought down to Sheol. Have you fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn? You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly, on the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Now you know what happened with Lucifer in heaven. That didn't go out very well, as we'll know. But do you recognize what Satan wanted? He wanted to be in the image of God and sit in the assembly. Think about you. You're made in the image of God, and you're seated in heavenly places. You possess the very thing that Satan wanted. Why does Satan have such a vitriol for mankind? Because you embody the exact thing that he wanted. And so every single time he looks at you, he thinks of his rebellion and his punishment. And so it's important to know it's actually personal. Satan is like not bored. It's actually personal against us. And so the first point for you tonight is that Satan is really real. He's not a symbol. He's not a a metaphor for evil. The enemy is really real, and he really wants to ruin what God is doing in you. And the Bible says, woe to earth, because the devil's on it. Revelation 12, 12 says, but woe to the earth and to the sea, because the devil has come down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. Not only do you embody what he wants, he's been thrown down, he's bitter, and he knows his time's expiring, so he's going to try and ruin it for everybody before his time runs out, because he knows his days are limited. So Satan is a real and active force. But isn't it so interesting that so many of God's children, almost 60%, believe that Satan is just a symbol and not a real entity? Now, if I were an enemy, I would really love to convince my adversary that I don't exist. Isn't it interesting that so many believers don't believe that Satan is real, but yet I think if that I had an enemy the best thing I could do was to convince them that I'm not a real force. Why would I do that? It's because I can then take 
from them in unlimited measure. Because if you don't recognize that the devil is taken from you, guess who you're going to think is taken from you? God. And so you need to know that Satan is real and is an active force. Why? It's because you cannot take authority over something you refuse to acknowledge. You cannot take authority over something you refuse to acknowledge. And you will lose what is in you, what God is doing in you, simply by the measure of not recognizing the force that is against you. And that is the story of Job. And trust me, I would love to talk to you about Job tonight. But Job is a story of a religious man who thought God was taken from him, but actually was the devil and lost everything and never recognized who really took from him. If you want to know how to be victorious over the devil, look to the life of Jesus. If you want to know how the devil can be victorious over you, look to Job. So what you don't know, what you don't recognize actually will hurt you. And I love my times with Eric Waterbury. Usually our nights end like this after maybe a couple entertaining beverages. He'll ask, is there anything I'm not seeing? Almost without fail. Every single time we meet, he'll stop. We'll have a good time conversing, encouraging one another. He'll stop and say, is there anything I'm not seeing that you see in my life? Why? It's because he knows that you cannot have a victory over something you don't think is even there. And so it makes perfect sense why the devil is so good at convincing the world that he does not exist because he can steal from you and you won't even know what happened or why. And so those who minimize the threat of Satan actually stand to suffer the greatest loss. So let's summarize. The enemy is really real. Why is that important? It's because unless you recognize what exists, you cannot take authority over it. You cannot defeat the devil while believing he does not exist. But believing that he exists doesn't really matter unless you know what the work of his hands are. Do you know how to identify Satan? Do you know how to identify his works? Unfortunately, Satan doesn't always show up in like a red jumpsuit, a pointed tail, and a pitchfork. So we have to learn what are the attributes, what are the results, what is the fruit of the enemy? Because you cannot recognize him. If you cannot recognize him, how can you stop him from accessing your life? Because, in fact, the Bible tells us that even Satan masquerades as an angel of light. And so it's inherently deceptive. And so in order for you to resist him, you must be able to identify his works. So what does the enemy do? Now, some people think it's actually impossible to know the works of Satan. The problem is that those people have not read their Bible. <laughs> it's just not accurate. Paul makes it very clear in 2 Corinthians 2. He says that we are not ignorant to the schemes of the devil. And he references that we cannot allow Satan to outwit us. So Paul is like really certain that the enemy's got a scheme that is clever, that is conniving. And so we know that the devil's works can be known. What is it? Well, in the simplest forms, the devil's works are to steal, kill, and destroy. Isn't it funny that our verse that embodies our ministry, that you'll have life, life to the fullest, we call that epic life. The verse before that, it's the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That the thing that stops you from having life and life more abundantly is actually an adversary that comes to steal, kill, and destroy. So I started a long time ago writing down, oh, it's, you know, the works of the devil are really complicated and really hard to understand. So I started writing down 
than when I found them. This is not an exhaustive list, but let me just give you just a little short overview of some things I found. Deep breaths, here we go. <clears throat> Satan is the world's original murderer. Satan is a thief, a killer, and destroyer. Satan is the father of lies and has no truth in him. Satan is the ruler of this world and the prince of the air, causing disobedience in people. Satan inhibits and blocks our plans. Satan sabotages the works of God and is the sower of evil. Satan seeks to devour and destroy. Satan tempts you. Satan takes advantage of you. Satan puts evil plans into people's hearts. Satan inspires you to lie. Satan traps you and causes condemnation. Satan tricks people to do his will. Satan holds people in bondage. Satan is a destroyer of the flesh. Satan strategizes against you for a right time. Whew, are you all right? Satan enters people. Satan is in full pursuit of people for evil. Satan causes trials and tribulations. Satan is an oppressor of people. Satan is a schemer and always looking for an opportunity. Satan is an attempted murderer on the baby Jesus. Satan tried to convince Jesus to commit suicide. Satan thinks he's superior to God. Satan blinds the eyes of those who might believe. Satan is an imposter and a masquerader. Satan prohibits belief in the hearts of those who might hear the gospel. Satan creates a stumbling block to make people fall. It's a big list. Is Satan a symbol of evil? I don't think you've read your Bible. Satan has a huge rap sheet. He's a bad dude. So what does he want with you? Satan will come against anything that God wants to do in you and through you. Steal, kill, and destroy. Awesome. That doesn't apply to me. Actually, it has everything to apply with you. It has everything to do with you. Satan wants to destroy and come against anything that God wants to do in you and through you. Paul three times blamed Satan for why he could not visit one of the churches. So all you have to do is to figure out your gifting, your anointing, and then have a good idea of how Satan might want to come against you. Because Satan wants to minimize you. He is going to find the works of God in your life, and he's going to try to squash out that fruit. He's going to assess you. And so how does he do that? Well, one of the ways that he limits you and comes against you is by causing confusion. It's one of the more sinister works of the devil. Satan causes confusion and complexity. Now, if you're saying sometimes, because I've felt this, I'm like, man, it's just so hard to think. Like, I'm just so confused. And man, it's just like really, I just have a really cloudy mind. Like, why is it so hard? I feel so just overwhelmed. Satan wants to cause confusion and complexity in your life. How do I know? 2 Corinthians 11.3. Look at this. Paul says, but I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived evil by his craftiness, your minds might be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Do you know people who have got really complicated relationships with God? <laughs> You're like, whoa, that seems really hard and really complicated and confusing. Paul's concern here is not against sin. It's against confusion and complexity. So why does the devil want to confuse us? Because when we get confused, we get hamstrung. We become ineffective. He doesn't necessarily have to steal from you if he can confuse you and minimize you. That'll be just as fine with him because he steals, kills, and destroys to minimize you. If he can confuse you and get the same result, he doesn't mind. And so, so many people that I went to college with had a pattern. It went, I just have so many questions about God to being inactive in their faith, not having any more vibrant faith in their life, that they had questions. And when you have a lot of questions, you don't find yourself doing a whole lot of God's work. The other way that Satan tries to come against you is that Satan wants to have you self-destruct. He doesn't just want to 
steal, kill, and destroy around the world. He doesn't just want to cause confusion. He actually wants to inspire you to self-destruct. And did you realize that the whole temptation of Jesus was not to make him do this or that. It was actually to self-destruct. The temptations of Jesus were not to test his willpower. The temptations was would Jesus make decisions to protect his future. Because Jesus could not be the savior of the world and have given in. The temptations of Jesus were to cause consequences in the future that would ruin. And that is what Satan wants to do in you. He wants you to make decisions that bring consequences to you that will ruin your future. I look at the temptation of pornography on my life. I don't think of it as just like, oh, a stumble and a sin. It's actually the battle for my marriage and for my kids. It's simple. It's to entice yourself into this. But, but the Satan's like, I'm going to confuse you with this little tiny thing, but over here is where I'm going. Because if I dismantle your marriage, if I dismantle your family, I win. I'm just going to tease you by enticing this little thing here. And so if Jesus would have sinned, we know that the entire future for generations, the, the ability to be the Savior would have been compromised. And so Satan has much bigger plans for you and mine whenever that single little temptation comes. It's not about that little thing. It's about who you are, what you represent. Which brings up a very important truth about Satan is that Satan is strategic in how he accesses us. He's no dummy. He's been at this longer than you. Sometimes we think he's just kind of, oh, you know. He's strategic after us. After the temptation of Jesus, there's a little mention of Satan that most people gloss over or miss. It says in Luke 4, 13, it says, When the devil had finished all his tempting, he left him, what does it say? Until an opportune time. Satan's calculated, and he's looking for an opportunity, meaning that there are times and situations that you are vulnerable that he's watching, he's listening, he's examining, and he's strategic. But the question is, do you know what he's looking for in an opportunity? So let's summarize. Satan is really real. Why? It's because you cannot take authority over something you don't believe exists. The works of the devil are stealing, killing, and destroying. Why? It's because you cannot take authority over his works and resist them if you can't identify what they are. But in order to thwart his works, we need to understand how he can operate and how he develops opportunities. Are you guys still with me? Third is this, is that Satan operates through power we surrender to him. Satan operates through power that we surrender to him. Let's do a history lesson of man and authority. God created the heavens gave man full authority. Sounds good? Until man disobeyed and surrendered all of that authority to the devil. How do we know? It's because when Satan was tempting Jesus, he says, all these kingdoms and all their glory has been handed over to me. Jesus dies, raises from the dead. The first thing he says, all authority has been given to me. Then in Luke 10, he says, I have given you authority. Man's given authority. Man loses authority to the devil. Jesus comes as a man, defeats the devil, is restored authority. Jesus restores it to us. So when Jesus says, I have all authority on heaven and on earth, that kind of means that someone doesn't have authority. It's Jesus. Or it's, oh my gosh. <laughs> Blooper reel. Okay. 
When Jesus says, I have all authority in heaven and earth, that means someone doesn't have authority. That is Satan. But how does that work? Because we know that Satan has authority. How does that work? Follow me here. The only way for Satan to function and to exercise authority is to deceive us into a lie where he then can operate from our delegated authority. The only way Satan has power and authority is to deceive you into a lie and have you come into agreement with that where he then can operate from that lie and influence your life. He's using delegated authority that's yours that you're surrendering to him. And so when we believe the lie, we empower the liar. When you believe the lie, you empower the liar. Christ's life tells us that a lie that is unchallenged becomes truth. How does the devil get authority when Jesus has all authority? Well, you believed his lie and went unchallenged, and he operates from that territory. When you believe the lie, it creates real estate in your, your soul that Satan then can have safe harbor to manipulate you, to lie to you, and to influence you. Now, the position that Satan takes in this is limited to his life, so we defeat him by dismantling the lie, and that's why it's so important to take territory of that and to refute the lie. But what does this also mean? This also means that Satan operates through other people. I just heard all of you wiggle in your chair. <laughs> Satan operates through other people. Now, people have a really hard time with this one. Because they don't think that Satan can operate through people, but he can and does. And usually people say our battles are not against flesh and blood. They're against powers and authorities and principalities, right? Well, how do the powers and authorities operate? They operate through people. Yes, we're not, we're not aiming after Jimmy, but Jimmy has come under submission to what the devil wants to do. And so therefore, Jimmy is the proxy for the works of Satan. Sorry, Jimmy out there. So the powers and authorities in the spiritual realms, they operate actually through flesh and blood. We keep saying, we fight not against flesh and blood. But then we can give an example for the powers and authorities. Because all of our demonstrations of Satan are actually going to come through a human. How do you know that? Oh, it's very simple. 2 Timothy 2.26 says, and Paul's talking about unbelievers and people who've been come under the influence of Satan. Look what he says. He says, and they may come to their senses, hoping they come to salvation, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. The individuals can actually make decisions where Satan can operate his will through them. In fact, I actually believe the most overlooked detail in the temptation of Jesus is what happened to Judas. It wasn't that just Judas was a bad guy and just really was like really fooled. Look at what happened to him. It says in John 13, 27, it says, after the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, do what you do and do quickly. So Judas surrendered his will to become a proxy for the devil to do the devil's will. So you, as a believer are actually not immune to that same opportunity. The devil can absolutely manipulate believers into accomplishing what he wants. Lest we forget the most humiliating passage in all the Bible, when Jesus turns to Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. 
Ouch. Man, that's rough. Get behind me, Satan, to Peter? Or how about when, remember the, the disciples are walking around, and there's a city that didn't receive them? And the disciples are like, do you want to call down fire and just, just torch the whole city? Remember what Jesus said? He didn't refute that that was possible. He said, you don't know the spirit in which you are of. You can be powerful, you can be a believer, but you can operate from the wrong kingdom. Now, there's a widespread lie in theology that Satan has to go to Jesus to get permission to attack you. I've had family who said, you know how, you know, Satan goes to Jesus and asks for permission to attack him, and Jesus says, sure. I was like, exercising all self-control, <laughs> It's a troubling passage for sure, but this lie, what it does, it, I mean, if, if our Savior is giving permission to the devil to attack us, who needs a devil? <laughs> when you have a Savior like that, who needs a devil? And so this one version, or this one verse rather, where Satan asked permission to sift Peter like we, do you remember that passage? that Jesus and Satan are collaborating together. And so if Jesus is collaborating with the devil, we're all in big trouble. Because we don't know if Jesus is in a good mood with us that day. Like, how does that work? So let me redeem this passage for you. It's Luke 22. It says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, once you have returned again, strengthen your brothers. If you look in a word-for-word translation of your Bible and you read this passage, you'll find the word permission is usually italicized. What does it mean when the Bible italicizes something in a word-for-word translation? It means that it's an implied word that the translators thought should be there. Sometimes it's really helpful to kind of clarify if like there's a word missing and we kind of need to get the understanding. But in this... That inserted word is causing all sorts of drama in theology land. Because <laughs> it's telling us that Satan is actually teammates with Jesus and who he attacks. And you know the kingdom that is divided will not stand. So that's not true. So that word is actually not there. Here's how this should read. Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. It's a declaration. And the real translation is that Jesus is telling Peter, Peter, I just heard that there's a hit out for you. Wow. Satan has demanded, has given command to attack you. And then he prophesies over him and says, but you're going to get back up. And when you do, strengthen your brothers. So Jesus is overhearing the spirit realm because we know that Jesus understands and hears and perceives what's going on in man's heart. So Jesus is overhearing in the spirit realm Oh my gosh, Satan just put a hit out on Peter. I better tell him and tell him I've prayed for you and you're going to get back up. And when you do, strengthen your brothers. That's how that passage should read. Now, how do we know that's true? It's because right before this passage, you know what Peter and the rest of the disciples were doing? They were arguing who is the greatest. They're there like, oh, am I the greatest? Are you the greatest? Are you the greatest? And Jesus is like, oh, Peter, like I just, on the APB right now, Satan just called four alarm fire for you because of what you did. And so pride is the sin that actually opens us up to Satan. Because pride is the exact same sin in the Garden of Eden. Did God really say that? 
I kind of got this. Does the Bible really mean that? I don't know. That's pride. And so when we exercise pride in our faith saying, I don't need this, that's not really true. When we exercise pride and question what God says, we sound dinner bells for the enemy. Why? It's because he knows that there's a weakness, there's a foothold. And so Satan doesn't need Jesus' permission. All he needs is yours. And so be careful with pride because that is the original sin that got all of mankind into this mess was question, did God really say, is that really the truth or can I really pull this off? And we say things like, well, God will forgive me anyways. I've been there. It's under the blood. I can make whatever decision I want. It's under the blood. It's under the blood. But you now just rung a dinner bell for yourself. And you need to know like, that's the consequence. I don't believe that God is going to bring an unnatural consequence to our choices. If I rob a bank, I, it should be expected I'm going to go to jail. <laughs> I don't need to ask, why, God, you know? But when I walk in rebellion to him, I should also expect that my rebellion invites the enemy into my life. And so when we begin to operate from a place that we know better than God, we open ourselves for Satan to deceive us. When he deceives us, he becomes empowered. When he empowers us, he brings us into a lie. I'm sorry. We empower him, and when we empower him, he brings us into a lie. Why does he want to bring us into a lie? Is to ruin our future. Why, will be, why does he want to ruin our futures? Because then we'll be in shame. And if we're in shame, we're ineffective. And if he's ineffective, he can go on to somebody else. Because there's finite demons in the world, right? Unlimited people over the centuries, finite number of demons. How do they do that? Is they spin someone out and get them so discouraged and so depressed and get them so bound up in their own shame they can move on. And that person maintains their own cycle. And so anyways, my main goal tonight was really to bring light onto who is Satan, what are his works, how do I identify them, and how do we understand how he operates? Now, this sounds like a very, very bummer message, doesn't it? I'm going to try and redeem it in one minute. I'm going to end with this, is that we know that Satan's going to come against us. It's just inevitable. You don't need, like, if you live a powerful life and Satan's coming against you, you actually should take, like, oh, I'm a threat to the darkness. That's awesome. <laughs> if you have no adversity in your life, you actually should be kind of concerned. You're like... Really? You're not threatened? No? No? Okay. Some of you are fighting through a dogfight of your life. It's actually, I believe, a sign that there's something that's in you that Satan doesn't want to come out and he's going to try and confuse and suppress and to minimize and to trap and to stall it. But if you don't know that he exists, if you don't know his works, if you don't know how he gained access, if you don't know how to dismantle it and boot him out by canceling the lies, then you'll always be stuck. And that's what he wants. And so how, I'm going to end with this, is how do we try to keep, he, he's going to come against us no matter what, but how do we keep him from occupying and developing territory in us? I have a suggestion of thought. Do you know the passage in Matthew 12 where it talks about evil spirits going to and fro, looking for a place to rest? Isn't that? What was unique about that? Does anybody know? That they are searching for waterless places. Huh. That's an interesting detail. The evil spirits are looking for waterless places to find rest. 
And then Jesus is like, I'm the living water. Whoever believes in me will be a fountain of living water. Translation is that evil spirits are looking for people who are in spiritual deserts. Spiritual dryness provides space for the enemy to occupy. Why? It's because it's uncontested. I'm going to leave it there. I love you guys. So I'm going to actually take you back to where we were a second ago. Because what you do with yourself after what you just heard determines whether confusion stays with you or whether you can have mental soundness, mental wholeness, and peace inside yourself. Revelations uh, 12, 10, 11 talks about the fact that you overcome the enemy with your testimony. And years ago, um, I, had a, I have a very close friend, his name is Chad, and he said, you need to give your testimony because I had just had an amazing breakthrough. And I said, I will in a couple of years when my behavior uh, clears up. And he goes, that's history. That's not a testimony. And so I want to encourage you. In, in our community, uh, we actually give real testimonies. If you're here tonight and you feel like the enemy's been attacking you, I posted today, the enemy wouldn't be attacking you if something very valuable wasn't inside you. Thieves don't break into empty houses. You've got purpose. But you'll only know your purpose to the level that you're willing to tell on yourself. That's why I ask Eric, when we get together, we got together last night and hung out, and we're walking out to my car, and I said, can you see anything I can't see? I don't ask that of a lot of people. I ask that of people whose lives uh, look like something I'd want mine to look like. And so I just encourage you tonight. Um, there's an area of my life, I was molested when I was 12, and my parents took me to a counselor who was also a predator, and they didn't know that. And so that started some things in my life that really brought me a lot of brokenness. And last year, I found a book called Shame and Attachment Loss by John, uh, Joseph Nicolosi. And that book, it literally brought uh, so many questions like, God has done so much restoration in my life, but it still wasn't where I wanted it to be, and I still didn't have peace in so many ways. And through that book, it's given me so much very specific information about what happens to people like me what happens to my belief system, what I begin to believe about my worth, what I believe about my destiny and my future. And when I started reading this book, I started going, wow. It was really hard to read. I literally, it took me six hours one day to read 41 pages. Because I would read it and walk up and down because my whole belief system was being challenged. But as I read that and I spent time with the Lord and he just began to reveal truth to me, and then I told Eric and Camille, I was like, you guys won't believe I've got this book. They bought the book and they started reading it for me, not for them. That's why I ask those guys, can you see anything in my life? Tonight I want to encourage you, if you're, if you, right now, 
you're the person that God would, that Jesus would say, Peter, get behind me. You have to remember that the Lord also said upon this man, this is the rock, and upon this rock, I will build my church. So the enemy wants you to feel shame about so many things. He wants you to keep them hidden. Many of us know areas of our life where, wow, I wish I was better. Find people whose lives look like victory to you. You'll be really chicken. Your pride will, you won't want to tell anyone where you're at. And you also have an enemy, and he'll tell you all kinds of thoughts. He'll try to get you to ignore this person. And don't you remember how you got hurt the last time you told the truth? And you know how church people are. And, and seriously, if that's all you got tonight, you got the church hurt thing, get over it. Go find some believers. There are some. Because the more that you t bring yourself into the light and you go, hey, what can you see and how could I actually do something with this area of my life? You'll begin to have a level of freedom and just wholeness in your mind. You know, people ask me, how are you? And honestly, lately, I've been able to say, I am the best I have ever been in my whole life. That did not come cheaply. That did not come cheaply, and it did not come quick. I'm 62, and I could really stomp my foot and go, God, where was this book all those years? I don't know. But I can tell you it's here now, and I'm celebrating my future and what God's going to do through me. He uses old guys, too. A bunch of you are old on the inside because the enemy has backed you up in a corner and you've sat in darkness so long. You're white, pasty, your skin is shriveled. You ain't got no color in your life. And God wants you to come out of the darkness, come out of the cave. So if all of you could stand. God wants you to come out of the cave that you've been living in. Come forward if there's an area of your life you want freedom in because God has freedom for you tonight.